This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hello and welcome to this episode of Intelligence Squared Arts and Culture. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. And I'm executive producer Hannah Kay. In today's episode, we're bringing you a conversation between acclaimed novelist Salman Rushdie and journalist and BBC broadcaster Razia Iqbal to discuss three touchstones of Rushdie's life. Touchstones is an Intelligence Squared podcast series. And what we do is ask a great figure from literature or the arts to pick three objects that have special significance for them. And then they discuss them in conversation with the BBC journalist Razia Iqbal. And in this episode, we have Salman Rushdie, the great novelist who's sadly recovering from a, a vicious attack in America. But this was recorded in 2021, before the attack. And he picks a silver ingot engraved with an unpartitioned map of India, Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man, and James Joyce's The Dead, which is a slightly intimidating but powerful inspiration. This interview was originally released as part of Intelligence Squared's Touchstone series in September 2021. Salman, a very warm welcome. Let's start with just simply getting you to tell us what you have chosen as your three touchstones. Well, the first one is an object. It's actually the the first thing I was ever given in my life. I was given it when I was one day old. It's a piece of silver. It's a little silver ingot about an inch high, which is engraved with the unpartitioned map of India. Because when I was born, it was two months before the partition. So in those days, Pakistan didn't exist. It was given to me by one of my father's friends, and I've kept it with me ever since, uh, always somewhere close by. Second thing is a story, which is, um, I mean, I'm a big Joyce fan, so I, it's, it's difficult to know what bit of Joyce to choose, but I, but I chose his short story, The Dead, from Dubliners, which I think has some claim to be one of the very greatest, if not the greatest, short story in the language. And the third one is the well-known Nobel Literature Laureate, Bob Dylan. (laughs) And uh, I've chosen uh, his song, Mr. Tambourine Man, which again, I mean, I could have chosen a hundred different songs, but I chose that one. Fantastic. They all sound wonderful. I'm so looking forward to talking about them in detail. Let's start with the ingot. So the oldest thing that you possess, given to you when you were one day old, 
What does it mean to you? What is it about this that has made you hold on to it? Well, I mean, first of all, it just is a link to a childhood which I remember with great affection. Unlike the hero of Midnight's Children, whose childhood is somewhat fraught and troubled, I, I remember my childhood as being sort of uneventfully happy. And this little piece of silver sort of takes me back to not just to the time, but actually to the place where I grew up and the neighborhood, you know, and uh, all of that. And I'm kind of amazed that I never lost it because, uh, I mean, when I was a kid, my dad used to keep it locked up and I would have to ask to see it because he didn't trust me. <laughs> but, but when I went to, to boarding school in, in England, he gave it to me to bring with me. And somehow, amazingly, through four and a half years of, of a rugby school education, I failed to lose it. And nobody pitched it. On it, it says $10, which is about, I think, just over 100 grams in weight. And it's of a very high degree of purity. It's almost 100% pure silver, which is actually purer than the pure silver you get now. I wonder about the the fundamental narrative of that foundational narrative of India, which it obviously symbolises, and, and what that means to you, the secular narrative of an India. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a child of that generation, uh, slightly older than the children I wrote about in the novel. I'm eight weeks older, <laughs> so, so not a great deal. And I guess I grew up as a person who bought very passionately the idea of Indian secularism, the kind of Nehruvian idea of India. And my family, like many Indian Muslim families, was divided more or less down the middle by the partition. Half my relatives were in or went to Pakistan, and an equivalent number decided that they didn't want to do that. And that included, you know, my parents' view, as expressed to me at some point, was that they felt more Indian than Muslim, if you know what I mean, that they, they didn't want to be in a a religious state. They wanted to be in the secular state that was being born on the Indian side of the frontier. So I remember listening to my parents and people of their generation regretting the partition and wishing that in some way it could have been avoided and that this map could have remained because at that time it was one country, it felt like one country. And even growing up, when I would go with my parents to visit relatives in Karachi or in Rawalpindi, they still felt like the same place. I mean, Pakistan felt more conservative, but they still essentially felt like the same place. And now they don't. Now they really feel like very different places. And also, when you were at school here in rugby in England, I wonder about the strength that this ingot gave you, because I know that you're very particular about not wanting to call the city that you grew up in Mumbai. You insist on calling it Bombay. And, and it's those changes that I think mean something in particular to you. Yeah, I think about Mumbai the way people who live in Saigon think about Ho Chi Minh City. It's a, it's, it's a fake name. And one of the, the arguments is that whereas there are ancient Indian cities which had ancient Indian names which were then anglicized, like Kolkata becoming Calcutta, like Vadodara becoming Baroda, like Varanasi becoming Banaras, it seems to me reasonable that those cities should go back to their traditional names. That if people want to prefer now to say Kolkata, I think fair enough. The difference with Bombay is that it's not an ancient city. It's a, it's a city that didn't exist until the British built it. It was a group of islands and fishing villages. Actually, if you wanted the oldest name, the fisher folk who lived there, they were called the Kohli people. There are still some of them there. And the southern part of, of the island, as it now is, is, is still called Kolaba, 
after them. And that's probably as old a name as you could get. Mumbai is a concocted name. And so I don't use it. It's a generational thing. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people of my generation still say Bombay. And a lot of younger people growing up who've not known anything except Mumbai say, say that without a problem. It sounds as though from when you talk about the amazement that you didn't actually ever lose this ingot, that it has become very precious to you. And I, and I wonder, just picking up on this idea of the foundational narrative of India, what you turn to and what you think about when you look at this ingot in terms of the soul of India today, which is such a different country to the idea that Nehru and Gandhi had. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's a, the, the philosopher Sunil Kilnani has a wonderful book called The Idea of India, and he explores this idea of a secularist state, how hard it is for, a, in fact, a very religious country, a country in which almost everybody has religious belief, for everybody to agree with each other that that will not be an element of the state, that religion will remain a private matter, it will not be publicly powerful or empowered. And one of the reasons in India for that was precisely because of the partition massacres in which so many Muslims were killed by Hindus and Hindus by Muslims, that the idea was that if you had a sectarian constitution, uh, it would perpetuate that kind of violence. And that the way of keeping the peace was to take religion out of the public arena. And I mean, it worked for a long time. Now, as you say, there's an administration in India which is much more a kind of Hindu nationalist government, trying with some success to move away from that idea, which I think is a, a great sadness. And the ingot, I presume, also connects you very deeply with your father and your parents, generally. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's a reminder of all of that, you know, especially, as I said, because my dad kept it locked up. <laughs> he wasn't very good at looking after things, actually. I mean, I, I, I've often told the story of this first short story I ever wrote, which was based on having seen The Wizard of Oz. And he got his secretary to type it up for me. And then he said, look, if I give it to you, you'll lose it, so I'll look after it. And then he lost it. Just a wonderful way for us then to get into your next touchstone, which is, in fact, a short story. And it's the last short story in James Joyce's collection, The Dubliners, which was published in 1914. So tell us why this is so important to you. When I was beginning to think about being a writer, I suppose when I was at Cambridge, and I hadn't really written anything worth mentioning, Joyce was one of the, what became one of the kind of giant figures for me, in a kind of funny way, because I, I had a, I was going out with somebody who was doing a dissertation on Finnegan's Wake and the French Nouveau Roman, as I must say, as an act of great love. <laughs> I therefore had to read Finnegan's Wake and a lot of French nouveau romancier, Michel Boutor, Nathalie Sarraud, etc. Painful experience. And, and of course, Finnegan's Wake is by far the most complicated and difficult of Joyce's books. And I, you know, I, I had trouble with it, as everybody does. And I went sort of backwards through Joyce. So I went from Finnegan's Wake back into Ulysses and from that back into the portrait of the artist as a young man and from that back into the, the short stories, into Dubliners. And the books become, as you go back in time, they become increasingly accessible. By the time you get to Dubliners, it's just really very beautiful stories. And I do think The Dead is an unbelievably moving story because it's about husband and wife and the husband discovers in the course of the story 
that his wife has really loved another man who died for her. And he realizes that whatever he does, he can never live up to that. He can never live up to the love of somebody who died for her. And so even though, you know, they don't break up or anything, they're together. But he just has to understand that he will always come second and that the dead, the power of the dead, is greater than the power of the living. The particular passage that you return to again and again is the one right at the end. I wonder if you would read it for us. This is uh, when Gabriel, Gabriel is the man. This is, this is when he's begun to weep because he realizes what we've just been saying. He realizes that the real love of his wife's life is a man who has died. And he goes to look out of the window and um, a few light taps on the pane made him turn to the window. It had begun to snow again. He watched sleepily the flakes, silver and dark, falling obliquely against the lamplight. The time had come for him to set out on his journey westward. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. It was falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hill, falling softly upon the bog of Allen, and further westward softly falling into the dark, mutinous Shannon waves. It was falling, too, upon every part of the lonely churchyard on the hill where Michael Fury lay buried. It lay thickly drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones, on the spears of the little gate on the barren thorns. His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. I wonder if we can just unpack it a little bit through the prism of what it meant to you, because, you know, you could argue that that is sort of quite a a maudlin reflection, but in fact it feels like an affirmation of life at the same time, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just it has a power of intense beauty, and that, in a way, is a greater power than what it's saying. It's a... Yes, it's about human life as we live it. You know, Michael Fury, the young man who's referred to in the passage, is the dead man that his wife used to love. And so, and the snow is falling at the beautiful reversal, falling faintly, faintly falling over all the living and the dead. In a way, the the living and the dead are united by the snow. I've always remembered when John Huston made his film of the dead. It's a very good film, Angelica Huston and Gabriel Byrne as the married couple. And at the very end of the film, when we've had this whole emotional scene, the camera simply does what the story does. The camera turns to the window and looks out at the window and there's snow falling outside. And instead of there being actors acting, a voiceover comes in and just reads that passage. And what it felt to me watching the film was that we had gone from watching a very good film to hearing genius, and that there's a difference between the very good and the great. That passage of Joyce actually just made me think, okay, that's that really just is as good as it gets. You can't write better than that. And, and actually, Joyce's work scared me because when I, as a young man, read it, I thought, well, what are you going to do? It's all, it's all be, he's done it. You know, it's, it's all done here. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I can't do, I can't do this. It must be like, 
a young 19 or 20-year-old writer who wants to be a playwright reading Shakespeare and thinking, oh, I may as well give up. <laughs> you might have thought that when you first read it, but I, I wonder what it is then that brings you back to it again and again. I mean, it's obviously the aesthetics of it. It's completely beautiful to read again, but I also wonder about the impact that it makes on you as a writer. Yeah, I think Joyce in general, you know, because people think of him as difficult, and as I say, Finnegan's Wake, very difficult. But the other stuff, not so much, really. And I think what people miss when they are scared off Joyce is the, the very deep humanity of his writing, incredibly deep love of human beings. Uh, wonderful writer of women. I mean, Molly Bloom's soliloquy at the end of Ulysses is maybe the best piece of writing that a man has ever done about a woman's interior life. And very funny, you know, there's a lot of Joyce that is very funny. And also it has the quality of great literature, which is that every time you read it, it gives you something else. It gives you something you didn't have the previous time. Partly that's because you change. You know, I mean, when I first read Dubliners, when I first read Ulysses, I was no more than 20 years old. I mean, that's more than half a century ago. No, I'd say I've read it, I've read these, these stories and this novel three or four times in the interim, and they feel like somewhat different texts each time because I'm bringing something different to it. It occurs to me that the story is also about Gabriel's observation that everyone, himself included, will only one day be a memory when he talks about the dead. And I wonder, as you have gone back to this story, whether you think about your own legacy at all. Yeah, I mean, I just hope there is one. <laughs> I mean, obviously, if you write sort of my kind of books rather than kind of pulp fiction, there's a part of you that is writing for posterity. There's a part of you that that hopes that these books will outlive you. I mean, I remember Martin Amis having this nice phrase once where he said that what he wanted to leave behind was a shelf of books. He wanted to be able to say, like, from here to here, it's me. And that's what you hope for. And you, you have no idea if it's going to happen. I mean, I know there are so many cases of writers who were enormously celebrated in their lifetimes who fell into obscurity quite soon afterwards, and vice versa, writers who were not so well regarded in their lifetime who became part of the fabric of, of literary canon. So you never know. You know. All you can do is put it out there. I mean, I like it. You know, if I look at some of the older books, like Midnight's Children, for example, I mean, 1981, it's almost 40 years since it came out. It's 45 years since I started writing it. And the fact that people still find it valuable, that there are still readers who respond well to it, that feels great, you know, because that means that it's leapt a couple of generations already. And if it could go on doing that, then maybe it'll stick around. That's, yeah, I mean, that's what, of course you think about that, or at least, I, I mean, you don't, you don't think about it when you're writing. You can't write for the future. You have to write for the people who might pick up your book while you're still around. <laughs> Of course, anything can happen to any one of us at any time. But it does occur to me that you lived with the actual threat of death for a very long time with the Iranian fatwa. And I wonder in that context, how much literature going back to the same thing again and again meant an awful lot more to you. And this in particular, this story in particular. Yeah, it helped, it helped a lot, literature, just to have the history of literature to think about. And the fact is that I'm not the first writer to have had a difficult time. Dostoevsky faced a firing squad. It was a pretend firing squad. They didn't actually shoot him, but he didn't know that it was just being done to scare him. 
And, you know, Joyce himself had a very difficult life politically. You know, he was in exile from Ireland most of his life. And his relationship with Ireland was very sad. I mean, so much so that when he died, his widow, Nora Barnacle, Nora Joyce, they were broke. And she asked for the help of the Irish government to repatriate his body. And the help was refused. And, you know, now he's an industry in Ireland in the way that now there's a bridge named after Samuel Beckett, another person that they didn't like. In the story, Gabriel Conroy says we are living in a sceptical, thought-tormented age, and that could apply to today. Yeah, and I mean, actually, that's the other thing, I think, that you get from reading Joyce now, is that even though he disapproved of the idea that literature should be political, his literature is full of politics. So, you know, don't listen to what writers say, look at what they do. <laughs> uh, you know, jo Joyce had this idea that writing should be, he, he said, static, not dynamic, by which he meant it should simply be. It should not attempt to persuade or to argue. It should be a, a kind of essence rather than a kind of polemic. I mean, fair enough, except that in The Dead, there's a political argument where people are talking about the Irish politics of the time. And Ulysses is full of people, there varying degrees of sobriety, having political arguments. So politics is all there all the time in him. And yet he doesn't make the mistake of making his books based on political issues. As a result, they don't date. That's, I think, was a lesson that I learned, which is that it's one thing to say public affairs are a part of private life. And so if you're going to understand the private life, that needs to be a dimension that you include. But the point is to make it a dimension which explains your characters and their lives, rather than making it the subject. If you make it the subject, then, you know, we live in an age in which things move very fast. The subject changes very fast. And if your book is too rigidly linked to a particular matter, then it, it becomes like yesterday's papers. And I mean, I was worried about this, actually, when I was writing Midnight's Children, because at the climax of Midnight's Children, there is this period in the mid-70s in India called the emergency when Mrs. Gandhi suspended democracy for about three years and took on authoritarian powers. And the book has a strong point of view about that. But I remember when I was writing the book, worrying that, you know, a time would come at some point when nobody cared about Indira Gandhi or the emergency. And I remember saying to myself, when that happens, this book is either going to get worse or it's going to get better. It's either going to be damaged by being too topical, you know, when that topicality has faded. Or people will see that the underlying drive of the book, its characters and story, emerge, you know, when that topicality is, is lessened. So, and I literally, I didn't know which it would be. I literally didn't know. Of course, and it's so interesting, isn't it, that we live in the middle of this incredible debate about cancel culture, which does sit in a period of real polarisation of freedom of speech versus authoritarianism and people saying, you don't have the right to say this, but I do. And I, I wonder how you reflect on that as a writer who is still keen to continue writing. I mean, I imagine that you're never going to stop writing until until you can't anymore. I hope not. Yeah, I sometimes envy Philip Roth for having had the strength to stop, but, but I, I don't plan to stop. Look, I mean, here's the thing about who owns material, the question about appropriation. Uh, my view is nobody owns material. Anybody can write about anything because otherwise 
you know, men could only write about men and women could only write about women and short people could only write about short people and fat people could only write about fat people and, and you know, so on. It, it becomes very quickly ludicrous. But that doesn't mean that you can be lazy about it, especially if you're stepping away from your own experience of life to enter into a very radically other experience of life, whether that's racially other or sexually other or whatever it might be. Then it becomes your business to get that right. You know, and to, and to find out about experiences which are not your own and write out of that knowledge. You know, I think write what you know is fair enough, but then sometimes you have to increase what you know in order to be able to write. And then there's, a, you know, the other question which I have great sympathy with, which is the question of power. That who, who gets to hold the microphone? Who is denied that? And I think that conversation that's happening right now, I know there's been this fuss about Annie Leibovitz did a uh, took a photograph of Simone Biles for Vogue and everybody thought it was a terrible picture. And then meanwhile, you know, a young black photographer took a picture of Viola Davis for the cover of Vanity Fair. And it's a fantastic picture. And basically, he knew how to like black skin. I mean, Annie's taken pictures of black people before. She's taken pictures of Michelle Obama and Oprah Winfrey and Serena Williams and, you know, all sorts of people. But she got this one wrong. But the thing that amazed me was the fact that this young man, who I'm ashamed to say I can't remember his name, is the first black photographer ever to be asked to take the cover photograph for Vanity Fair, ever. And that's what I mean by power. The argument sometimes crosses into two or three different arguments. You know, the question of power, the question of being able to enter other realities and how do you do that, that's one set of questions. The question of silencing opinions that you don't agree with, to my mind, is, is, is another question. And certainly in my own experience, the pressure for censorship comes from the right wing. And it comes, if, if generationally, it comes from an older generation. And younger people are more iconoclastic, more willing to throw out the garbage of the old. And the left traditionally has been in favor of free expression. And what we now see, that's still happening. I mean, here, sitting here in New York, where the Trump administration conducts a daily attack on the freedom of the press, such as I've never seen in a democracy. So there is still that pressure from the right to limit speech. But now there's a kind of pressure from the left, from what people would call themselves progressives, to outlaw certain kinds of utterance. And I've always thought of, free, of democracy as being like the town square. You know, it's an argument. Everybody's having an argument. And the argument never ends. But the ability to have the argument is what I would call freedom. Because in, in dictatorships, the first thing that happens is people shut down the argument. And so I think when the pressure comes from the right and the left, that space for debate is squeezed. And I worry about that. Let's turn to your third touchstone, Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man. So tell us why this. This was this was the first track that was released on the acoustic side of the March 65 album, Bringing It All Back Home. Why this one? Well, what happened was when I was in my early days at, at boarding school at rugby, a friend of mine in the same boarding house that I was in got hold of a, a couple of Dylan albums and was very, very excited and summoned me into his little cubicle. We used to call them studies, but they were really about the size of a shoebox. And he said, sit down and listen to this. And then he said, he said, don't say anything until you've heard the whole record. And he put on the LP, the vinyl LP and played the two sides of bringing it all back home. And I said, you know, in love with it. And I opened my mouth and he said, no, 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 you have to listen to it all again. He made me listen to the whole album again. 
and by the end of that, I was, you know, I was a Dylan fan, and I have remained so ever since, although his voice isn't what it used to be, sadly. And you've seen him a lot in concert? I have seen him quite a few times, yeah. Most recently, about a year ago, he had a gig at the Beacon Theatre here in New York. And I went and, I mean, he's really not singing anymore. He's sort of doing something halfway between growling and shouting. I mean, his band is terrific, but and the words are great, but, you know, he used to be, I mean, he never had a great singing voice, but he had a very expressive singing voice. And, and he had unique phrasing, which is why very, very few people have been able to improve on a Dylan song. People cover Dylan all the time. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. I mean, loads of people have done Mr. Tambourine Man. I mean, are there any that you think match it? The most famous one is The Birds did it, but The Birds turn it into this kind of tumty-tum song, (laughs) 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 which which it sort of isn't. And people have tried to cover Like a Rolling Stone and It's No Good. And Well, there's a few songs that people have tried to cover successfully, like Just Like a Woman has, has had a lot of very good cover versions and I Shall Be Released. But Tambourine Man, I don't think anybody, anybody... I mean, the Birds version is pathetic, really. First of all, it's a story song. You know, it's a long narrative song. And it's, and it's a long song. So it, it actually breaks what used to be the kind of rule in the early 60s, that pop songs had to be under three minutes long. And suddenly you have much longer songs coming out of Dylan. And, and a bit later, when, when he released Blonde on Blonde, one of the four sides of the double album is a single song. You know, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands is the whole side of the album. So he got people used, in a way, I guess, that J.K. Rowling got young kids used to reading very long books. Dylan got people like me used to listening to very long songs and finding the richness of them. Also, of course, it's a psychedelic song. I mean, Mr. Tambourine Man is a drug dealer, essentially. And so the song is about, a, a, about an acid trip. Hasn't Dylan always denied that, though? Yeah, he could deny it all he likes. <laughs> Take me disappearing down the smoke rings of my mind, really. And I never did acid, you know. I mean, I was always much too scared to uh, take those drugs. And so, in a way, my only experience of an acid trip is through Mr. Tambourine Man and songs like that. So you're a man of words, so um, reflect on the lyrics. I mean, you talk about this as a long, I think it's about five and a half minutes long, this song. Let's just reflect a little with you then on the, on the kind of surrealism of those lyrics. I agree. Well, I mean, that's the thing that most appealed to me about it, is the surrealism, the, the kind of fabulous nature of the song. That's kind of been my inclination as a writer anyway. And Dylan, I mean, I mean Dylan's writing is very beautiful, and it showed me a lot, you know, a lot of his writing. What I re- resist a little bit, is people saying that Dylan is a great poet. Because to my mind, the, the, the words and the music are so entwined. I don't know what it would be like for somebody to read Bob Dylan's lyrics who had never heard the music. Some of the songs, I think, would not hold up. I think actually Tambourine Man is the one that comes very close to holding up. I think it's actually lyrically very powerful. For example, I mean, I used to be able to do this. I used to have Bob Dylan memory competitions with Christopher Hitchens. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to have a memory competition with Christopher Hitchens is the, is the dumbest move you could ever make. <laughs> Christopher had a, a retentive power for verse and for poetry greater than anybody I've ever known. And you know, you would say you could say to Christopher Shelley, and he would do twenty minutes just from memory. He could do Byron, you know, etc. And, and he could do Dylan. So. We used to have these competitions, which I would always lose, but they were enjoyable. And I used to be able to do Tamarine Man from memory 
but you know, now I'm 73. So, so it's not quite what it was. I actually think the last verse, the last verse of Tamarine Man is the one which is most poetically beautiful. So maybe I'll just recite that. Take me disappearing through the smoke rings of my mind, down the foggy ruins of time, far past the frozen leaves, the haunted, frightened trees, out to the windy beach, far from the twisted reach of crazy sorrow. Yes, to dance beneath the diamond sky with one hand waving free, silhouetted by the sea, circled by the circus sands, with all memory and fate driven deep beneath the waves. Let me forget about today until tomorrow. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me, etc. I mean, that's... I mean, that is poetry, as close as anything. And so pictorial. It's full of pictures all the way through. You know, the haunted, frightened trees, the twisted reach of crazy sorrow. That's very good stuff. That's why, as I say, he is a great writer. He is a great writer. And, and actually, I think there's a lot of very great lyricists right now, of whom Dylan is very near the, at the pinnacle, you know, and then Paul Simon, Joni Mitchell, Tom Waits, any number. And one of the arguments I would have when I was president of PEN America was saying that we need to broaden our understanding of what literature is, and that there is no way, really, that you can say that these writers are inferior to most novelists who get their books published. They're actually at least as good, if not better, than most novelists. And after a very long fight, I managed for some time to persuade Penn to, to start granting lifetime achievement awards for lyrics writing. And Dylan said he didn't want it. <laughs> he was holding out for the Nobel Prize, Salman. <laughs> he really was, it turns out. But like in the first year, we would give it to two artists every two years rather than one a year, just for sort of more fun. And the first year, we, we gave it to... Leonard Cohen and Chuck Berry. And they both came, and it was an extraordinary moment because they'd never met. And Leonard Cohen said this very sweet thing about Chuck Berry, He's, who he said, you know, everything began with Chuck Berry. He, he said, if Beethoven hadn't rolled over, there wouldn't have been room for any of us. <laughs> Salman, thank you so much for sharing with us your three touchstones. We have got about 10 minutes for questions. So I'm hoping that you'll keep your answers short so we can get as many in as possible. So the first one is, in Golden House, you write stacks of ingots, sacks of doubloons, racks of Louis d'Or and buckets of ducats. I wondered how important it is to you, how your writing sounds when it's read out loud. Well, I mean, thanks. I, mean, I think the answer is I pay a lot of attention to the music of the words. It just it's really continuing on from what we were saying about lyric writing. I do sometimes read passages aloud to myself to see if they sound right. You know, because actually the ear is a very good judge of mistakes. You you can't fool yourself when you hear yourself saying something that isn't right. It gets past your defenses. So, yeah, sometimes I do that. And particularly with long dialogue sections, because with the difficulty of dialogue is to differentiate properly so that the two people each sounds like themselves, you know. And it should be possible to write dialogue without having to say who's speaking. You should know that from how they're speaking. And yeah, I, I, I'm lucky in that I have, a, a for the last three or four books, had this wonderful series of, of readings and, on audiobooks, and which are much better than I could do myself. So uh, I'm grateful for that. And yes, I, I do pay attention. 
The next one is from Frank in London. I couldn't help notice your three touchstones were an object, a piece of literature and a piece of music. In the current century, it would seem that children and young people might encounter far fewer objects, far less literature, at least in the traditional sense, and a more hyper-commercialised music. Do you imagine in 50 years, a teen today might be able to say her first iPhone was a touchstone and <laughs> in as meaningful a way? Has something fundamental changed, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think fundamental things change all the time. That's sort of all right. It's all right that the world changes. And it may well be that an iPhone is a touchstone. I mean, iPhones are colossally transformative in our culture. I mean, even at the political level, I mean, I think one of the reasons why we're having this conversation about racism is because people are able to record racial abuses on their smartphones. It's, it's not that racial abuses just began. They, they've been going on throughout the history of this country. But now... People can see them, and it changes the conversation. So I'm absolutely willing to believe that iPhone could be a transformative object. I think I think the questioner is wrong about children's literature because I think children's literature is actually thriving right now. You know, I think it's an age of wonderful children's writers, ranging from little children to young adult, Jackie Woodson, Neil Gaiman, all sorts of people. I think children are well served right now. And seem to read them and, you know, still read them in substantial quantities. But I do think that the world is different. And I mean, I have no idea 50 years down the line what people will think of as their talismanic objects. I hope one of them is a book. This is a question from Christopher Clement Davis. Uh, was it reading Joyce that inspired you to commit to being a writer? Or is it too simplistic to say that? What what other factors tipped the balance for you? Because you, for as long as you can remember, you've wanted to be a writer. Yeah, long before I read Joyce, I mean, when I was too little to read Joyce. I mean, Joyce actually was kind of, as I said, was almost off-putting because the scale of the talent and the achievement was so great that it made me think, well, I, I can't do that. Yeah, I mean, I was a bookworm as a kid. And I think a lot of writers come out of readers. A lot of people who are in love with the experience of being with a book, being inside a book as a reader, conceive of the desire to write the thing that they love being inside. And certainly that was my experience, you know, that, that I began as a reader. And when I was a little boy, I mean, my parents told me that I would say to their friends when asked, what did I want to do? You know, I didn't say I wanted to be an astronaut. You know, I said I wanted to be a writer. <laughs> and, and of course, when you say that as a kid, you have no idea what it means. And, and, I, and I, think, I think all you know is that it means I love books. And to want to be a writer is a completely different thing from being able to be a writer. And when I started trying to be a writer, my great fear was that I would not be able to do the thing which was the only thing that I'd ever wanted to do, because I had no plan B, really. You obviously didn't need one, even if you didn't know that you didn't need one. This one is from Robert Swannell. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. I was a pupil at rugby school at exactly the same time as you. Unlike you, I was useless academically, but I do have 1,431 separate Bob Dylan tracks on my iTunes. Astonishingly, having not returned to the school for over 30 years, I ended up chairing the governing body. It's now a much better and kinder place with 50% girls. Other than discovering Bob Dylan, what impact, if any, did the experience of your four and a half years there have on your literary career? Oh, that's so interesting. Well, yeah, I'm sure girls are a big improvement. I felt that the quality of teaching was incredibly high and inspired me. I mean, I had teachers, history teachers, who gave me a love of history. and I ended up being what I studied at university. 
I was actually very bad at French until I met a particular French teacher who inspired me, and I then became rather good at French. He was a gentleman called Mr. Lewis, whose initials were PG, which meant that schoolboys, of course, would refer to him as the pig. (laughs) Pig Lewis was was the person who made me want to read French. So that's all of that, the academic side of being at the school, I would give very high marks to. It was also a time when when I had my first experiences of racial prejudice. So there's that side of it too. I remember coming into my little cubicle and finding a racist slogan written on the wall, kind of wogs go home. I remember coming into another time, coming into my study and finding that my homework had been torn up and left in pieces on the floor. And so, yeah, so I, I learned that too. I learned that too. And that may not have been a bad lesson to learn either. Let's just uh, end where we began, in fact, with a question about partition. Do you think partition really could have been avoided? Was, was it not a capitulation to Jinnah's demands to avoid a threat of civil war? Well, the point is, the question is when, because you're right, by the end, by the time you get to 1947, it's not avoidable. But remember that Jinnah didn't start off on the partition side of of the argument. He started off on the other side and uh, was basically driven out of the Congress party by what he thought of as Gandhi's hostility to his leadership, which may be right or wrong. It's hard to say. There was a particular presidential election inside the Congress party where Gandhi came down against his opponent. And as a result, Jinnah was not elected as the as the president of the Congress, and that's when he began to split away from it and join the separatists. I think there's a moment in the early 40s when it could have gone another way, that Jinnah could have been kept inside the Congress party. In 1940, there's, a, there's a, the Quit India Resolution, and at, at that point, a lot of the Congress leaders are, are arrested and jailed. And the Muslim League steps into their shoes to assist with government, and that's seen as being betrayal. And I think maybe after the Quit India Resolution, it was impossible to prevent it. But at some point in the late 30s, the beginning of the 40s, I think it was still possible. I mean, it didn't happen. You know, and one of the things I was taught as a history student was never ask the question, what if? It's, it's hard enough to understand what actually happened. What if is an uninteresting question. There's just one final question, I think we've got time for it, about the possibility of you turning to India again as the subject matter of your fiction, uh, particularly in the context of Modi. I mean, India appears in all shapes and sizes in, in many of your novels, but I suppose the question is is referring back, I suppose, to Midnight's Children. Well, I mean, never say never, you know. But at the moment, I mean, I'm very interested in what's happening where I actually live and in facing up to that. Not even politically, because as one of the earlier questioners suggested, the world is transforming in all sorts of ways at a very high speed. And that's interesting. To live in a time of very, very rapid change has always been inspiring to literature. Shakespeare lived at a time in which the English language was transforming very rapidly. And he became at the heart of that transformation. I mean, so much of the language we now use was stuff that Shakespeare made up. To live at a time of transformation is a, is a highly creative experience. I'm trying to keep keep a hold of that, you know, trying to ride that, trying to ride that horse. Salman Rushdie, thank you so much for a fantastic conversation. It's been so delightful hearing about your touchstones and so much more. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared Arts and Culture. If you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events, or peruse over 20 years from our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. This event was originally produced by Farage Asat. 
Editing was by executive producer Rowan Slaney and Daisy Moll. And I'm your host, Catherine Hughes.